0: You are listening to In a City Like Yours, a semi-monthly podcast featuring interesting people with interesting life stories. This podcast may contain language and or subject matter not suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. I'm your host, Michael G. Moore. Please visit our website at inacitylikeyours.com. That's I-N-A-C-I-T-Y... L-I-K-E-Y-O-U-R-S dot C-O-M for links to our social media, all popular podcast platforms, and links of interest pertaining to all episodes. On this episode, I chat with Paul. Paul works for the Mid-South Peace and Justice Center in Memphis, Tennessee, and has been an activist for the past 20 years, garnering quite a reputation for his outspokenness and organizational skills. Join us as we talk about the Mid-South Peace and Justice Center, homeless rights, and laws involving the poor and destitute in Memphis. Here's Paul's story.
1: Michael, I'm happy to join you today. Uh, My name is Paul Garner and professionally, I'm uh, the organizing director uh, at a nonprofit in Memphis, Tennessee called Mid-South Peace and Justice Center. And unprofessionally, I kind of play rock and roll music and make art that I try to kind of align with my uh, political outlook and have a little fun at the same time. I guess I'd have to start at the beginning. That's a good place to start. Um, You know, I was born in Shreveport, 1988, and grew up with um, parents that, you know, really encouraged art and music and thinking critically. And um, I always appreciated that. But even more now, looking back, my dad, Dan Garner, who a lot of folks in Shreveport know, you know, kind of raised me in making sure I knew a lot about like the city I came from and the rich history of um, not just music and art, but even activism in in Shreveport. And he was a member of the Pomoja Art Society that was predominantly a a black arts um, group in, in Shreveport. And I remember getting brought to a lot of those art shows and gatherings as a kid. And, I remember my dad being a a real big advocate for uh, the preservation of a lot of our historical uh, buildings and sites in Shreveport. And, you know, so I got to see what advocacy looked like from an early age, but I think sort of my foray into that kind of started as a, as almost kind of a joke uh, of being in high school. And there was the recall of Keith Hightower. uh, Well, yeah, there was the recall of Mayor Gray Davis going on in California. And it's kind of a joke and sort of a, punk rock gesture, I guess, um, being kind of a bored high school kid that didn't really feel like there was a lot of representation of of some of our points of view. Uh, Ran like kind of a joke campaign around my campus that ended up being me handing out flyers at the Rebel and even meeting uh, Keith Hightower face-to-face to to recall Keith Hightower. Um, And it was kind of a joke campaign, but I was running for King of Shreveport since I was too young to run. Um, So I ran unopposed, of course. There were no other steel fist wielding, um, uh, autocrats running for King of Shreveport. So I, I won in the landslide, but that was kind of my first like getting out talking to people and then later having a punk rock band and, uh, you know, handing out flyers and stuff like that. A lot of that has translated into a lot of the s- similar kind of tactics that I use now as an organizer, but in high school, we were organizing punk rock shows and there weren't a lot of venues, um, where we could play because the smoking laws had changed in Louisiana and clubs that I grew up going to like the Noble Savage and places like that, um, I couldn't get in anymore and I couldn't play there. So we had a a couple options, uh, 516 Soundstage and uh, Ron Hardy, who has been a supporter of the arts for a long time, had a place called H&H Lounge that we were playing, but kind of by chance, I ended up after a mini cine show at Big D's Barbecue one night and one thing kind of led to another. I developed a kind of a fast kinship with Big D, the owner over there at 101 North Common Street. And he was all about the idea of us basically doing whatever we wanted over there as kind of a headquarters for having these free shows. And sometimes we would charge like a small five dollar cover, but he never took a dime from anything we did. And we pretty much called the shots and you know, everybody respected the venue and and we started getting a lot of pushback kind of unofficially from the city uh, when cops were starting to show up at a lot of our shows and there were some kind of renegade shows at the Shreveport skate park that, that got raided by NPD. And and I think in general at the time there was a big push to, um, you know, from a lot of the music community saying that the city needed to do a lot more to support local artists um, in general. And from our perspective as you know, kind of the younger crowd uh, we sure felt like we had a, a, Part of that conversation, we were kind of getting pushback for trying to promote these free shows, and we were saying, you know, support the music and arts that are already here. So that was like the first time I ever spoke at a town hall. Was uh, there was a town hall that I think was called by uh, Mayor Cedric Glover, and it was supposed to be the first of you know many conversations, but um, I think it was the first and the last uh, town hall they had, and they had a lot of musicians and art advocates that spoke out, and I think that was like the first time I got quoted in the paper and. So it was kind of a premonition, I guess, of things to come. When I when I moved to Memphis, I wasn't really looking uh, initially to become an activist or anything like that, but um, my, my political ideology was kind of evolving. I moved here in 2006 to go to the Memphis. Um, you'll probably hear a little train in the background now. Um, but I moved here in 2006 to go to Memphis College of Art. It was the closest nationally accredited art school, and that's kind of where I saw my life taking me. Um, and, you know through my art, developing that political ideology. I had a kind of radical Marxist professor, Dr. Robert Canfield, who I think played a big role in kind of shaping the the direction of what I wanted to do with my art. And, And so I started being a lot more explicitly political in a lot of the art I was making and also the modes I was operating in and started doing a lot more street art and public art kind of installation pieces and things like that. But I was kind of looking around at like, you know, who else is kind of trying to do something like this with their art and You know, while there were a few people that I felt in my peer group who were doing that, um, I wanted to maybe go outside of the art world with it a little bit. And um, I went to a a punk show here in Memphis, and it turned out it was actually a benefit for the Memphis Socialist Party. And they had all, you know, the literature and propaganda out on the table. And I was looking at this, reading this um, pamphlet called uh, Democracy and Socialism. And, you know, talking about Dr. King's ideology connected to these ideas and thinking, you know, this is the first time I've I've really connected with a political party. And so I was interested. And so a friend of mine that had accompanied me there, uh, she and I went to this socialist party meeting and I, you know, was real novice. They had like organized structure and stack. I wasn't used to any of this at all, but um, I was into the ideas. And they were talking about this organization, Mid-South Peace and Justice Center, and how recently, and I guess this was around 2011, the Peace and Justice Center had had done a Freedom of Information Act request event, where basically they had people writing letters uh, requesting their FBI files. Uh, Memphis Police Department had, and the feds had showed up at the church where the office was located and surrounded the church with all these, you know, unmarked black SUVs and um, they actually went into the church and went up into the offices of the Peace and Justice Center to warn uh, the folks that were there that there was this protest happening and da 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 da, da and they thought they were in the church offices, but um, they were actually in our offices. It was Gandhi on the wall and not, you know, it wasn't Jesus. So we, we pointed that out to them, but we never could. they never could get a straight answer about, like, why that happened. So I ended up going to a meeting with Peace and Justice Center. Um, I remember Brad Watkins was... Uh, talking about the center's work around homelessness and housing. And and he really just seemed to know the ins and outs of city bureaucracy. And I was just like kind of in awe. So I, I just kind of started attending more meetings, getting more involved. Um, the first as kind of like a volunteer, uh, some friends of mine. And I uh, did this art project that was kind of a public installation project to raise awareness around um, at the time, the center was pushing for funding for uh, a 10-year plan in homelessness, which to this day has not been fully funded. But we created these kind of life-size cutouts of, you know, kind of depictions of people that might, might find themselves experiencing homelessness, and we had the faces cut out, and they were all holding kind of what looked like cardboard signs with information about um, homelessness and how funding uh, for this 10-year plan in homelessness could make a difference. With the idea of, of having people try to put themselves in that place, you know, um, like this could be you, right? And uh, so we did these kind of guerrilla art installations all over town, and that was sort of my first um, experience volunteering with the center and wanted to help them make signs and, and flyers and started doing a lot of that. But I was also attending meetings at the same time of a group that um, Brad had been putting together called uh, Hope or Homeless Organizing for Power and Equality. The idea that You know, those most affected by the issues, people who have formerly experienced homelessness or are currently experiencing homelessness, are like the real experts on the issue. And you know, you've got all these folks who might have real great intentions that are trying to meet, you know, certain needs. But um, as far as addressing the systemic issue of of homelessness, uh, those who have actually, you know, been through this experience day in day out, they know a lot more about the challenges and therefore have a lot of ideas about the solutions. And um, this was all around the same time that. The occupy movement was kind of taking hold. So I would, I immediately kind of got involved with that before I was officially, you know, working at the center at, at the time, I, I think I was around my, my junior or senior year and I was working at a Sherwin-Williams paint store and I would get off work and go, you know, sleep downtown essentially. Cause I, I, I you know, uh, I think by this time, maybe I graduated or something, but I was living in my van, occup- you know, doing the Occupy Memphis thing, volunteering with the center. Um, I'd worked to help co-found a homeless caucus at the homelessness and at, at the uh, occupy encampment because even this sort of like encampment that we had in front of city hall, there was people who were talking about the folks that had been there, you know, experiencing homelessness, like they're not real occupiers dah, 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 dah. And I was like, oh, on the contrary, like these folks were occupying this space long before we came along and put up our picket signs and, and tents. Um, and so we wanted to create a space within the camp so that there would be an organized voice for people experiencing homelessness that wanted to participate. And eventually, kind of long, long, long story, a little bit shorter, um, I, we worked to merge the homeless caucus, the, the membership of that caucus, and uh, the organized Organizing of Hope that uh, Brad was doing in more of the Midtown area. So I was kind of downtown, he was in Midtown. Um, We kind of brought that membership together, and that kind of began this um, more long term relationship with me working with the center. So that's how I initially got involved. And I think it was around 2012, there was an opportunity for the center to hire somebody full time through America Works, um, which is sort of like a, it's kind of like the Peace Corps, except it's domestic. Um, working around issues of poverty and things like that and so i i applied and um, i guess they figured i was already there doing the work they'd probably get a little more work out of me if they paid me so um, (laughs) i I quit my job at the paint store started basically doing the organizing thing full-time coordinating our homeless organizing uh, for power and equality cohort you know, was basically working to facilitate and build new leadership within the group. And uh, I think at the time we had about five project areas that we were working on. We had a women's caucus uh, uh, group that eventually was doing com- community gardening. And we instituted a group that was specifically working around educating people on the street about what their rights were and um, documenting police harassment, things like that. And we uh, were even working on a, a project to uh, where we people experiencing homelessness would own and control, uh, a kind of a co-op printing, uh, silk t-shirts to make some additional income. So we had a lot going on and that was kind of my early days. Uh, and from there I worked on a lot of other issues that the center focuses on around homelessness and, and public transportation, but after homelessness also renters rights. And, uh, eventually a lot of this work led into police accountability and, um, there's a lot of one thing led to another kind of situations that have kind of gotten us where we're at. But so uh, mid South peace and justice center, like I said, um, is a kind of a social and economic justice organization. We're a nonprofit here in Memphis. We were founded in 1982 by a lot of kind of folks with ties to the Catholic worker movement, uh, to the Quaker movement and just kind of peaceniks in general, I guess, um, back in the eighties, they were focused on a lot of global issues. Um, They worked with organizers in South Apartheid, I'm sorry, Apartheid, South Africa, um, who were working to to resist those uh, forces, and they would send organizers here, we would send organizers there. There used to be uh, peace and justice centers kind of all over the country, which is how we ended up with such a long name, uh, Mid-South Peace and Justice Center. I think there's still like Houston Peace and Justice Center, Nashville has one, but we're not like affiliated officially in any kind of way. It was just kind of a, a thing of the time. So, you know, they also did a lot of anti-nuclear proliferation work. Uh, we had folks who laid down on the train tracks here in the 80s to stop trains from carrying nuclear missiles through uh, Memphis. And uh, we were founded very intentionally on on Dr. King's birthday because, kind of, the the driving f- force of our organization is that uh, we can use nonviolent tactics and uh, organizing efforts to create long-lasting systemic change. And I would say over the last 10 or 15 years. You know, while the war is still waging and, you know, maybe the war machine is more well-funded and and more coordinated than ever across the globe, and we are still very much an anti-war organization, uh, we've kind of taken the focus of looking at our local communities. And while we're spending billions of dollars a year, you know, propping up this military-industrial complex, uh, we're not funding things in our local communities like public transportation quality, affordable housing, equitable education, um, you know, medical care, uh, all the things that, that really make our communities thrive and make them safe and make them stronger. Um, that's kind of the cost here at home to the wars abroad. And so uh, we focus on building constituent-based power in our local communities uh, where there's not already a, a strong organization doing that work. So with homelessness, they typically don't have a union or a lobby in Congress fighting for them. So. Uh, Our our approach is working with those most affected by that issue to uh, build power and organize and win victories uh, on those issues. And similar with public transportation, uh, for the past seven years, we've worked uh, to incubate and support a group called the Memphis Bus Riders Union that's fought millions of dollars uh, in cuts to local public transit and are in the midst of kind of a large budget battle right now, uh, where for the first time we're trying to get not just the city but the county to put a substantial – amount of funding into our public transit system. You know, just because of the work we've done, we've also experienced a lot of retaliation from law enforcement, uh, whether it's at protests or um, doing Know Your Rights um, workshops. And basically a lot of our work around homelessness kind of led us to having to file complaints with internal affairs and documenting a lot of the barriers there. And that kind of spread out to um, some larger work around police accountability, where in 2015, Uh, We got an ordinance passed that that strengthened by ordinance our civilian law enforcement review board to oversee uh, complaints when people aren't satisfied with the internal affairs process. And uh, apparently that campaign led to uh, a lot of police surveillance, uh, which uh, last year can somewhat concluded, at least for now, uh, in a uh, federal lawsuit where the ACLU sued the Memphis Police Department and the city based on a 1978 consent decree um, that forbids the police in the city from collecting political intelligence that could infringe on people's ability to exercise their First Amendment rights. So, um, yeah, I'm th- I know I'm that, throwing a lot at you.
0: <laughs> that's okay. Didn't, uh, didn't the police have you on a blacklist at one point?
1: Yeah. So, this kind of not too too long after all the club ordinance stuff kind of got passed and was starting to meet and view people's complaints, there was a list that surfaced that the city claimed was an escort list for city hall, but it had 80, like 87, 88 people on it. I'm actually on that list twice. Once for an off appears to be an authorization of agency, like basically a, uh, kind of like a trespassing order after a, after a protest that happened on the mayor's lawn that I was not at. Um, and then Again, I was was arrested while filming the police at a protest a couple years back on Martin Luther King Day at Valero, uh, where water protectors shut down the entrance to the Valero plant. And I was filming it and was arrested while filming, so my name is also on a list with all the people that were arrested there. So it appeared less to be... And well, in all these situations, people were critical of the police's response. So it it was kind of a list of the usual suspects and uh, folks who had been critical of of the police department in some way or or critical of the mayor's administration. And so that kind of led to a lot more coming out about how uh, the Memphis Police Department was also using social media and creating fake accounts to monitor uh, activists and organizers and to try to figure out how we were associated, which because of court documents, we now know that they had a lot of really sadly uh, incorrect information about a lot of us and how we're associated and things like that. Like they thought for some reason, the police think I'm on the police review board, even though they could have just checked that and I'm not, I never have been. So there's a lot of bad intelligence that we kind of learned about through that process as well. But yeah, a lot's happened in like the past few years of, of doing this work.
0: Hello, my name is Jacob. And I'm his co host, five year old Olivia. Do you have kids? And are your kids curious? If you answered yes, you should check out Curious Kid Podcast, a weekly educational podcast for curious kids and grown ups. Every week, we learn about another topic. We've already learned about spiderwebs, batteries, the moon, and so much more. You can find us at CuriousKidPodcast.Buzzsprout.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Talk a little bit about how your arrest went. Uh, did, where, did you have to spend time which, before which you one? were released? <laughs> oh, which one? Well, go ahead and do them all, then. I don't... I'm not aware of all your arrests, but uh, I'm interested in knowing how you're treated because of this uh, blacklist and and things and having the police um, treat you with, you know, like you're always a criminal.
1: Yeah. I mean, so I mean, like the first time I was ever arrested was kind of back in the early days of me getting involved with the center. I'd gone up to Nashville and was arrested in a protest up there. So usually when you're arrested, like at a protest, it's kind of almost catch and release. It's like, you know, you're detained for about 12 hours. you you go to jail and you do all that. But if you get bailed out, you know, you're usually out by the next day. And, um, sometimes they kind of slow down the processing or whatever to kind of mess with you a little bit, but it's, it's part of what you sign up for when you engage in a arrestable direct action. On the other hand, like I've been arrested while filming police twice, once was at um, a homeless, um, Uh, Hospitality um, house here in Memphis that were trying to enter the property of the of the place without a warrant, and I was cited with obstruction of a sidewalk and and uh, disorderly conduct, which is basically the charge I always get because they can't. It's not it's not illegal to film the police. It's not illegal to protest, but um, if they want to arrest you, uh, they can. You know they will find a, a, a reason to to make to make your life a little more inconvenient, even if they know the charges won't stick. So. Going to jail, like I said, it's it's one thing, but it's, it's sort of like wondering if you're being monitored, like wondering what the extent of that surveillance actually is. It's like hearing your phone click when you're talking to folks um, about, you know, plans that you're not trying to necessarily broadcast on Facebook, like not knowing if, like when you see a cop parked outside your apartment, like for a long period of time, is it just a coincidence or is this, you know what I mean? It's like this paranoia kind of gets to you. And then and you find out concretely that you're not crazy to be a little paranoid and then you're not wrong. And they have been, you know, keeping tabs on people and where they are and who they're associating with and who they're talking to. And um, it's not just the effect that it kind of has on you personally, but to think like, there's a lot of people over the last few years that have gotten really activated and want to get more involved um, in organizing in their local communities and, you know, thinking about the threat of police surveillance or retaliation, it makes a lot of folks think twice. And I think that's the real scary part to me is that, you know, I've, I've been in this, doing this for a long time now. So I'm, I've, I've always kind of known that that is a part of that reality historically of, uh, police surveillance and retaliation. Um, and it goes back a long time here in Memphis. That's why there's a 1978 consent decree. Um, you know, back in the seventies, um, when this initial lawsuit was fired or filed over police surveillance, the ACLU won and the Memphis Police Department burned 10 file cabinets full of documents that they've been keeping on organizers and activists, including Dr. Martin Luther King. So, so there's a long history of that, but we're always trying to get more people involved and get more people active. And I'm I'm kind of, you know, I've always been worried that the unintentional consequence of even bringing that subject to light kind of makes people think a little bit, you know, think twice about, about going to a protest or putting their name on a petition or things like that, right? Talk
0: a little bit about uh, your recent activism with uh, the bus bus lines and and, and uh, whatever else you've, you've done recently that you can really expound on.
1: You know, we wear our hat different issues. Uh, they're all connected and what we say is kind of like, you know, it's all intersectional and, and we don't mean that just because that's sort of a new buzzword of the day, but it literally like a lot of our work has intersection with the constituents that are affected, or even the fact that we end up working on them might be because a constituent, in another group has an issue. Kind of like the police harassment issue with our, our members' experience in homelessness led us to doing a lot more police accountability work. A lot of our work um, is intersectional and um, so, you know, you can't really talk about housing insecurity without talking about jobs and, and the lack of employment opportunity for people in Memphis. And in Memphis, you also can't talk about that issue without talking about um, gaps in services, in particular, public transportation. So I think 70, 75% of Memphis is is black. And so um, also these issues always end up being a, an issue of racial justice when we see more of our public resources allocated in the predominantly white affluent parts of town than we do the majority of the rest of the city. Um, we have a higher poverty rate than the national average. And, and so we, we, we kind of have to be intersectional because all these issues just kind of compound one another. Um, so with public transit, that was some work that started, like I said earlier, about seven years ago and actually kind of came out of the Occupy movement locally. Um, A lot of us were interested in seeing some of the um, focus around the Occupy movement, um, making change around some local issues, and transit seemed like an issue where we could talk about uh, racial justice and the intersection of environmental justice, um, as well as you know just issues of class and and uh, financial insecurity. And so um, eventually, the Memphis Bus Riders Union was born, and that was seven years ago. And since then, they've been Fighting cuts, and part of the problem is uh, here in Memphis, we're so dependent on federal funds, and I, I imagine it may be similar in Shreveport. That you know, a lot of local dollars go to expanding these big development projects and subsidizing um, things like that. But when it comes to issues like transit um, or housing, uh, the city usually leaves that up to charities and the churches and things like that. So there's no dedicated source of funding for our public transit here in Memphis. And we've just seen it you know, over the decades, cut and cut and cut to where um, like North and South Memphis, you've got neighborhoods that are just completely isolated and cut off six o'clock at night. There's no bus coming to or from that neighborhood, which is effectively a, a curfew for a lot of folks. Something more recently that's occurred um, is that our state legislature passed uh, work requirement laws saying that anybody who receives SNAP, WIC, or Family First benefits, uh, those are programs like food stamps and also Family First uh, helps mothers who have small children get child care and afford uh, the cost of having a a young child. Um, But now all these folks, if they're not employed full-time or in school full-time, they have to work up to 30 hours of free labor or community service a week in order to keep their benefits. Um, And when you couple that with A a lack of public transportation it's even worse so I've got we're clocking folks uh, hours over here I've got about 30 women a week that are coming through our office and we're trying to break down barriers to them you know getting their paperwork taken care of and getting the hours that they need to fulfill to to fulfill this but it's made a lot harder for folks to even get here you know uh, when they got to take two two hours on a bus and in context you could get from here to Little Rock, Arkansas, in two hours, right? But you, but some people can't get to bus uh, to work on the bus in that time, so it's pretty bad. Um, and so we've been trying to get the city and the county to increase funding for MATA for several years. But by and large, uh, most of what the work we have done has been having to fight off, in you know, oncoming cuts to to our public transit. So uh, last year, we had to fight uh, seven routes being completely eliminated. Um, and a lot of holiday and weekend service. And, you know, I think it's kind of hard sometimes for folks who have never had to depend on public transit to understand that, you know, people have to plan their entire lives out around this bus schedule. Um, That's not always on time or when it should be. And the same things that those of us who have uh, cars are trying to do, go to work, go to school, medical appointments, uh, groceries, even social events and parties uh, or city council meetings, we can't get there on, on the bus, and but people are try, are trying to use that service to do that, and so it's it's a real important issue, and it's an important issue for fighting poverty. Um, and a lot of the focus in Memphis seems to be about our high crime, but you know, I, I, again, I don't think you can talk about crime and public safety without talking about you know what are the things that really make our community safe, and when people have food in the fridge, and when they have uh, a, a means to get the things that they need they're not gonna break into your car, they're not likely to mug you on the street. Uh, So I think, you know, we've gotten to a point where we try to use the police for everything, and all this funding goes to um, beefing up the police, but it's not making our communities safer. And in some cases, it's making our communities less safe. Um, So, yeah, then we're back to the intersectional loop of of now we're talking about police and we were just talking about transit, so. um, but that's a, that's the way a lot of our work is here. It's kind of like not just parsing out the issue, but also um, kind of showing how it's all these things are connected to one another.
0: Do you know <laughs> what the jobless rate is in
1: Memphis? I uh, don't have the, the jobless rate on hand, but I mean I know that there's a ton of people that aren't working, and, and a lot of our members have lost jobs or had to drop classes, like college classes, because the bus wouldn't get their, them on time there consistently. And let's see. I know Shelby County has like the highest concentration of folks who receive uh, SNAP benefits. That's like 68, 69,000 people right there that are affected by these work requirement programs. Um, so you know that's 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 a high number. We have a lot of um, a lot of the jobs that exist here are low wage jobs, and that's like one of the selling points that they they use often to try to get companies to come to Memphis is, you know, our low, our low employment, uh, wage, we state of Tennessee's seven twenty five an hour. Um, and we have a lot of temp agencies that are kind of these unnecessary middlemen, you know, staffing these companies and keeping people from ever, you know, finding gainful employment. And they just kind of get stuck in this, this loop of working for temp agencies. And so a lot of our, um, folks who we're working with to make sure they keep their benefits, those are the kind of jobs that are out there available for for them. And, you know, they don't pay a living wage. Um, In many cases, these folks are going to have to work, you know, two jobs to make ends meet. So, and we don't, we don't work specifically on labor issues um, because, like I said, we work where there's not already a strong organization in town to do that work. And here locally, we have workers Interfaith network. We have a group called, uh, well, that's the local fight for 15 group that's been pushing for, higher uh, living wage and um, some other groups that kind of do labor work. So we kind of work to support them and show up to their organizing efforts. But I definitely think stuff that we work on around housing and public transportation has a lot to do with labor. It's kind of the other side of the coin, you know. Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Carol. And we're the hosts of Retro Late Fee, We are
0: stuck in 1994. And we can't get out! (laughs) We're watching all the movies and TV shows that you probably remember, I guess. Somehow we're speaking to you through some kind of time portal. Right. Uh, Join us every week for great movies and TV shows from 25 years ago. (laughs) It's fun, I swear.
1: One of our first victories and one of the first things i got to like participate in on um, was when hope in 2012 uh, won unprecedented funding from the county for direct homeless services prior to uh, 2012 uh, the county had never put any direct investment of local dollars into uh, direct homeless services so hope won by lot by kind of advocating to the county commission and having folks go down there and talk about what housing would mean to them um, $510,000 was put into the plan, uh, the 10 year plan in homelessness. And that provided case management, wraparound services, so that when people were placed in housing, you're not just setting them up to fail, but you're also offering them the services that help provide additional structure and kind of help keep them housed long term. Because uh, in Memphis, we have a high chronic homelessness rate. So you've got you know, most people who experience homelessness, it's kind of an in-and-out kind of thing. But in Memphis, while our our population overall of people experiencing homelessness might be lower, we have a higher rate of people who stay out on the street longer. So, you know, I have know many people who were out here for 20 years, and you can imagine how conditioned you might become to life on the street after 20 years. It can be real difficult going back into housing. So uh, that money provided that wraparound support uh, to house over 100 people in one calendar year, who were considered like the most vulnerable based on a, what's called a, um, a VI a vulnerability index of, of homelessness um, that that calculates your vulnerability. So these were people who were projected to die on the street without intervention within two years if they didn't get housing. So that was $510,000 so and not only did that, but it also provided 69 new units of housing uh, for families where one or more of the parents had a disability. So that was like pretty phenomenal and that you know, $510,000 thousand dollars is, is kind of you know a small number it's a drop in the bucket when you talk about a budget that's about a billion dollars right so recently we were kind of blindsided to find out that during this election year uh, which is, is you know related um, the city mayor and the county mayor came out and just announced out of nowhere that they were gonna um, create this city-run shelter for single women That it's going to include a dog park and food trucks and a car wash where you can bring your car and get it washed by men who are experiencing homelessness that are still going to have to pay $6 a night at this shelter next door for men. And, you know, again, but let me put the price tag on it. So they're talking about like $800,000 from the city, $800,000 from the county. So $1.2 million Disneyland of homelessness that is only going to provide permanent shelter for 32 women. Now, that still doesn't sound maybe that bad on the surface, but for that same amount, you could house over four to five times uh, that same amount of people, not just individuals, but families too, um, in permanent supportive housing, and not just do it once, but do it every single year. So the thing that they've announced is totally just an election year stunt. Most of the service providers we've talked to, like knew nothing about any of this and so it's it's just sort of like gloss on the on the problem and window dressing instead of addressing what's actually in the tenure plan and homelessness. So our position is that they could take that same amount of money and stretch it so much further and actually instead of having one ribbon cutting you could have hundreds of people getting housing, permanent supportive housing just like we did back in 2012. So it, it's not it's not even like that it's a new or radical concept it's just that Memphis has been lapped by the You know, national best practices about twice now uh, when it comes to permanent supportive housing. and We're still in this mindset of of making sure people are ready to be housed when the science says you put people in housing first, then you provide the support to make sure they stay housed. And we've got it. We've got programs that are getting funding right now to do that. uh, But right now there's no more housing. So even if they shelter these 30 women, you know, for however long, there's nowhere for them to go once they leave that shelter, they'll still be homeless. So that's kind of what we're contending with that. Uh, We've we've gotten mixed uh, feedback on that so far, but we're working really hard to try to change the narratives so that we can avoid the city doing something that, you know, people could potentially regret later.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit now, let's go back to your art. Now I know you do a lot of art that expresses your activism. Is there a place that that can be seen? Do you have a website?
1: Yeah, um, I've got an old blog that's got some of my old paintings. I think it's called like Into the Noid, I-N-T-O-T-H-E-N-O-I-D at Blogspot. I have not updated that one in a while, but um, a lot of the stuff I'm doing right now is kind of through uh, my band called Action Cat. That's A-K-T-I-O-N-K-A-T. So no C's, just uh, two K's in there. And uh, we've got a website called it's just actioncat.com there's a lot of uh, our visual kind of art stuff through that and i'm doing more currently and album album coming soon but we also do like a lot of uh little animated we've been doing messing around with animation and um, some other stuff as well so folks want to check that out
0: let me ask you this if if someone were to come to you for advice on um, becoming a community activist and and the trials and tribulations, what would you tell them?
1: Well, they call it the struggle for a reason. <laughs> number one, so it's 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 hard, and there's a lot of disappointment. But you know, when you work with other people, uh, and and when it's the best, it's the best feeling in the world. To know that like somebody's life is going to be like not just you know sub, substantially better for the moment, but when you can change the way something works in your community for the better, for the long term, it feels great. Um, but also like when you're trying to figure out how to get started, go, go find the people that are already kind of doing the work in your local community, um, and, and see how you can support and learn from what, what they're already doing. And and again, I, I think it's really important that you don't let your passion kind of get, or your intention get in the way of, um, of being as helpful as you can be. So, you know, if, if you care about working on homelessness, you know, start by talking with people who are experiencing that issue, like, what are their priorities? Like what, what, what are the solutions that they see right that's been like something that i've learned a lot about working here that i going into this that wasn't even something i was it, it seems so like second nature to me now but like when i first started working with the center that was something that really appealed to me was that this wasn't just folks coming in saying here we're going to come solve you for your problem this was like let's work together to to address this and uh, so i think i think that's the right, right way to go about it it can be a lot more difficult in the short term but um, you know, when five years later you look around and you see all these new organizers that are, they're really in, doing great work on their own, right? You kind of can look back and say, we really built something here. And that, that feels pretty good.
0: Steve from Evil Minds Podcast. On the podcast I'll be covering some of the most horrendous crimes ever committed. Some of them you may have heard of, others you won't, but all of them are true. So come and join me every Wednesday as we look at some of the most evil minds that have existed. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher or just about anywhere where you get your podcasts from. I hope to speak to you soon.